Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 12 from the book of Hebrews titled, Tasting the Good Gifts Without True Conversion. We're looking at Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 9. I'm your host, Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, this is a very challenging section of scripture. Many Christians have debated over the meaning of this. Can you give us just a brief overview of some of the things we're going to see here that cause people concern? Well, yeah, this is a, a, a very controversial passage, really. It's a battleground passage that many have come to and have gone back and forth uh, over on the issue of security of salvation. The question is, is it possible to lose your salvation? Is it possible to, to be converted, genuinely converted, uh, but in the end end up in hell? And there are two great theological systems within evangelicalism, the Calvinist system and the Arminian system, and they, they tend to battle over the issue of, of security of salvation. And those that advocate that you actually can lose your salvation uh, would bring uh, people to Hebrews 6, 4, and following. So this is the passage that we're going to look at today and try to understand it, try to understand what the author is saying and what the dangers are. Hmm. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 6, and just to get a little idea of the context, I'm going to start with verse 1, even though today our questions are starting in verse 4, and I'm going to carry through verse 12, although in the next podcast we'll look at verses 9 through 12. Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, Andy, starting in verse 4, the word that jumps out at me is this word impossible. The verse says, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and then it goes on to talk about people who have experienced spiritual things. What does impossible mean in this sentence? It's a very challenging word for me. It's uh, hard for me fully to understand. Uh, one thing we need to know, note is that verse 4 begins with the, with the connective word for, which actually the NIV leaves out entirely. But there is a strong link between verse 3 and 4. So if you look at them together, and God permitting, we will do so, for it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, etc. So we really are, when we look at the impossibility of verse 4, let's keep it simple and just take all the, the clauses in between for those who have X and Y and Z and A and B and C. Let's take all that out. It is impossible for those people to be renewed again to repentance. That's what is impossible. 
where they seem to have been repentant for their sins before and living the Christian life, and now they're not repentant and living the Christian life, and you want to try to get them again to be repentant and living the Christian life, you say that's impossible. And that's a, a challenge, obviously, uh, for us, because fundamentally we know that uh, God can do anything. You remember how Jesus said it's very hard for a rich person to go to heaven. Uh, he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. And when the disciples were amazed at this, they said, well, who can be saved? And Jesus answered with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. But now we have this text saying it is impossible. So for me, I understand this, the text this way, saying the only reason that this is impossible is that God will not do it. The whole thing comes down to the sovereignty of God for me. God permitting, we will make progress. And if he doesn't permit, it's impossible for you to be saved. So I'm going to really put it down to this, that God will not renew these individuals to repentance for the reasons that the author gives. Hmm. So that brings the, I think, the obvious question for most people, then do we still plead and pray for repentance for people who it seems that this scary situation maybe describes someone we love who's wandered away? How do we still plead for mercy and ask God to save them in light of this verse? Well, I don't think we're able to take all these clauses and the, and the condition if they fall away and specifically apply it to any person, saying, well, we know it's impossible for them. Um, we're supposed to always be of good hope and pray for people, even in the worst cases. I think, you know, you and I were talking earlier today about this text and saying, you know, for us at the human level, we'll say it's very difficult. <laughs> so we know that there are people like this, and you try to go talk to them, and it's very, very difficult to talk to them. Because honestly, here's the point, they've heard it all before. They ran with the evangelical church for a while. They heard the gospel again and again. They've heard the best exegesis and they've seen the best examples and it wasn't enough for them. They fell away. And so for them, it's, it's just very, very difficult to see them turning back. We don't see that very often. But this language here is not, it's not, it's very difficult or we don't see it very often. It's saying it's impossible. So we really have to say the ultimate impossibility rests with God. For us, though, we just, as we look at cases like this, we recognize this is a very dire situation. It's something that's very serious. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, let's go through some of these, these clauses. He says, um, you know, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened. What is this word, you know, both these words, once and enlightened, what is this teaching about the kind of person we're talking about? Sure, and if we look at the whole list together, and then we'll go through it line by line, but, you know, if you look at it, once been enlightened, uh, taste of the heavenly good. Uh, shared in the Holy Spirit, taste of the goodness of the Word of God, powers of the coming age. You know, these descriptors, everyone wants to know. The, the battleground is, are these people genuinely born again or not? Are they genuinely Christians? Have they been justified by faith in Christ? That's the question. And then they fall away, and they can't be renewed again to repentance. So if they have been, then the teaching goes from the Arminian point of view that this is a clear text te teaching that you can lose your salvation. Now, I think that the motive that that theological system has is to keep you from, from becoming complacent, which is the very thing that the author is working on. They have the same motive as the author. Don't get lazy. Don't be complacent. You've got to keep running this race right to the end. The people who stand firm to the end will be saved. Those kinds of things. And so they think that by saying you can be a genuine Christian and then end up losing your salvation, end up in hell, they're actually helping with perseverance. I think they actually hinder it because it's very discouraging. You're very, being very man-centered. You're focusing. It's all up to you to keep yourself saved. 
basically, he who began a good work in you will get out of the way and let you finish it. And so fundamentally, we have to say, no, that's not an appropriate way of understanding salvation. I don't think it is possible for someone who has received the gift of eternal life to later die, because then they didn't receive eternal life. They received, I don't know, seven year, three month, two week, one day, and four hour life, and then they fell away. So for me, if you receive eternal life, you're going to eternally live, both in this life and the next. You'll survive physical death, you'll survive judgment day, you'll never go to hell, you'll not be condemned. So this is the absolute certainty we have, and there's so many other verses that teach eternal security, and I'm not going to go into them. But the question here is, are these people genuinely born again? And I would have to answer that if they can fall away from Christ, apostatize, then they were not genuinely born again. So now, uh, having said that, we have to go through the phrases. How then can we understand these phrases in light of someone who's not really born again? That's the angle you're going to take here. So let's look at them one at a time. And by the way, what I just said is corroborated by a very clear teaching in 1 John where it says they went out from us because they were not really of us. Right. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. As it is, their going out shows that they were not really of us. So I think that's the same you know, within biblical uh, framework to teach this kind of thing. When somebody falls away, they're showing they never really were converted to begin with. All right, so the problem then becomes the actual phraseology here, the actual phrases. So we start with the first one. It is impossible for those who have been, what is it, once enlightened? Yeah, those who have once been enlightened. Once yeah. been enlightened. So I think, as I remember the Greek, it relates to the word for light, photizo, something like that. And it's, there's a sense of light coming to you. Uh, or uh, when we think of enlightenment, we're not thinking about Buddhism now, okay, or you, you know, reaching, eventually going to reach nirvana or something like that. No, enlightened means to arrive at a certain kind of aha moment scripturally and spiritually. You see something you haven't seen before. There's something that amazes you. Some, in some way, your eyes are opened and you can see new things. And what we have to do is say, all right, is it possible to have an experience of enlightenment like this and still not be born again? Can we have a, an experience in which you learn something new that's very profound and that moves you emotionally, but you're actually not born again? And I think the answer is yes. There are many reactions to Christ's miracles, for example. People marveled. They were amazed. They were astonished. They thought it was incredible. Um, but it says in John 2 that many came there to see Jesus' miracles, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. And he didn't need anyone to give him testimony about what was in man because he himself knew what was in man. In other words, these are people that marveled at Jesus' miracles, but they weren't actually born again. Now, in this, it has to do with a more of an intellectual, spiritual enlightenment. There's, they've heard some preaching. There's been some insights. And like, wow, that's profound. Wow, that's very deep. Wow, that's very interesting. That's fascinating. So there's a movement inside them, intellectual pleasure, um, moments of, of surprise even. And like I said, the aha moment. Keep in mind in the parable of the seed and the soils, we have the stony ground here that hears the word and it says at once receives it with joy. We could well imagine that you could use the word enlightened at that point. Yeah. They're excited about the word. They're, they're, they're filled with joy over it, but they're not born again. So they have once been enlightened. Yeah, and it says they've, they've tasted the heavenly gift. You know, I don't know if that's referring to, well, it says, and then they've shared in the Holy Spirit. Before we get to shared, you know, tasting the heavenly gift, this seems to be people that, 
they you know they see the like you said the joy of heaven maybe mm-hmm. they the fellowship of the people of God and the spirit of Christ among the people and mm-hmm. but then they it has no effect on them yeah i think you know big picture i think what's going on is is that the author of the hebrews is talking about people who went to church they did not forsake the assembling of themselves together but they went and they heard preaching and and keep in mind and this is very important for my exegesis of this passage uh, back in Hebrews 2, um, it says that they that the gospel is testified to by signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And so they had experienced miracles. Yeah. They had seen, they may even been healed or had a loved one healed by some apostolic miracles. And they were amazed at that. They were stunned by that. And so they, they tasted the heavenly gift. Keep in mind also Jesus uses a similar expression with the Samaritan woman. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, you know, give me a drink. You would ask him and he would give you living water. So you could, you could say that they tasted the gift of living water. Um, they had an experience of Christ, an experience of the goodness of Christ and of, of his role as Savior and all that at a, a kind of an external level. They're not genuinely born again. They don't have saving faith. But they um, have tasted ultimately Christ, the gift of God, the heavenly gift. Mm-hmm. Now, what and about this shared one. in the Holy Spirit? Yeah, what is that? The ESV the shared, ESV says shared in the Holy maybe Spirit. Maybe be partakers yeah. in it. And again, I think what what I'm going to look at. If you go back uh, to Hebrews two one through four, that section it talks about how those who were eyewitnesses testified to the gospel with signs and wonders. And so I think you've got what you've got is a a really remarkable first century Christian community in which these people have been partakers. They've come on Sundays and they've seen signs and wonders. They've seen healings. They've heard speaking in tongues and prophecy. They'd had some some amazing predictions made and saw them fulfilled. They marveled, they marveled, they marveled. It was an amazing experience and they kept coming. So they they were sharing in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We would not want to say that they had received the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the indwelling spirit because Jesus said, I will send you the spirit of truth to be with you forever. He can never leave us. He can never forsake us. It is by the Spirit that Jesus takes uh, his dwelling place in a human heart and never leaves. So we would not say that that's what's occurred here, but instead they have tasted the benefits of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Keep in mind also that the Spirit is almost always in the New Testament spoken of as the power behind every miracle. Even Jesus's miracles, it says, were done by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter said that to Cornelius, how Jesus went around doing signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit. So that it is the Spirit that does miracles. And I think what it means here is that they had received the benefit of miracles. They had been partakers in these benefits. In the, I mean, again, they might have themselves received physical healing. And by the way, on that, physical healing by Jesus doesn't save your soul. You can think about John 5 where the man there is healed and Jesus comes later and warns him, says, look, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. He's not talking to him like a converted man. Not at all. Something worse will happen to you if you don't stop sinning, if you don't repent. So he's physically healed him, but he's not spiritually healed him. And I wonder if these people were like that. Yeah. Just to round out the list, you know, tasted the goodness of the Word of God mm. and then the power of the age to come. You've okay. already talked on the power of the age. but Yeah, the first would be just, again, that solid exegesis. They're, they're getting good preaching. They're hearing that they're, they're enlightened, as we talked about earlier. They've had a lot of aha moments. They've tasted the exegesis. And this is what makes the whole thing so dangerous. So you go back to them a year later, six months later, it's like you know, you're trying to reach out to them, trying to win. They've heard it all. They've heard the gospel, God, man, Christ response. They've heard it again and again, and they've turned their backs on the whole thing. 
There's, there's nothing, nothing more that, that you can do. You have nothing new to say. God sent his son, lived a sinless life, died an atoning death on the cross, was raised from the dead on the third day. If you repent and believe, you know, of your sins, you'll, you'll you repent and believe you'll have forgiveness of your sins. Yeah, yeah, I heard it. Heard it all. 20 times, 50 times, 100 times. So if you look at that, you know, it says that they have, you know, been partakers of the word of God. They've received and heard the, the, the preaching and the teaching and the powers of the age to come. And by the way, apart from this whole context here, I think it's really very encouraging to think of it this way, that all the miracles, the miracles that Jesus did and the miracles that the apostles did in his name are foretastes of a world to come. They're signs, mm -hmm. kind of like you're driving to New York City or driving to Nashville or something like that, and the sign tells you you're 185 miles away. It means, yeah, you're getting closer, though. Next sign you see is 177 miles, and you're making progress. So the, the age to come is the new heaven, the new earth, the resurrection age, in which we'll be completely healed of all of our sicknesses and of death itself. And so all these miracles were powers of the age to come. Pretty exciting. Yeah, I remember um, just, I think about this story every time I, I read this text. When I was in seminary, one of my professors told the story of a you know, man who, who always comes in and hears the preaching as a young man, and he's thoroughly convicted. He goes home weeping, you know, and, and just, man, that was a really a great sermon. The preacher really, he really laid it on heavy today. And, um, and he would, you know, I got to hear some more of that next week. And over the years, he continued under that ministry and, and it had less effect. And by the time he was older, he said, you know, the preachers, they really don't preach like they used to, mm, you know. Mm. And my professor said, no, they still preach like they used to. You just can't hear it anymore. Mm. And he was talking about the dangers of being unconverted and under powerful preaching ministry and in the end he had a hard heart yeah a hard heart that's the very thing we saw earlier in this book in hebrews 3 that you know we have to we have to watch out for the deceitfulness of sin that has the power to harden our hearts so yeah i think as we look at this list you're, you're talking about uh, people that were surrounded by the most ardent fruitful productive spirit saturated local church ministry you could imagine but they were not themselves it seems genuinely converted so that's that's what I make of it. And I think I understand why why people from an Arminian point of view say, how can you say that these people aren't converted? You know, they're enlightened. They've received the spiritual eyesight. Isn't that faith? You know, they've they've become partakers in the Holy Spirit. I understand. But the, the key for me is what the author says a few verses later when he says, even though we speak like this, beloved, we are confident or persuaded of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation or things of salvation. So in other words, he's saying those things are not proof of salvation. So these people uh, were not saved, according to the author. I think that settles it for me. That's in verse 9. Yeah. So he didn't think they're saved, so I think I shouldn't think they're saved either. Yeah. So how should we think through these words then um, to restore them again to repentance? Okay. Obviously, to restore them again, that... You know, did they repent before? What kind of repentance was that before? Well, keep in mind, there are different kinds of faith. You know, James says there's dead faith and demon faith, and then there's a faith that actually brings life. And, and there's I, different kinds of different repentance. Different kinds of repentance, exactly right. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you look at Judas. Judas had a kind of repentance, a remorse, some people call it. You know, you wish you hadn't done it. People do that kind of thing. That's one way to look at it, to restore them to repentance, to, to bring them back. Or it could just be external. Um, which is a good thing, you know, to have the external trappings of repentance, the things on your face, the things with your body, your demeanor, your body language, and then your actions, 
like Zacchaeus, saying, Here and now, Lord, I give half I possess to the poor, and if I've swindled anyone, I'll repay it fourfold. And then he goes and does it. Look, we don't know that he's genuinely born again, but it sure does look good. So it could be that external life of repentance that, that is godly and humble and pious. It's impossible to restore them back to that kind of life. That could be one way to put it. Or to get them back even to their shallow level of repentance that they had. Not genuine repentance that saved, but to renew them back to the level of repentance they even had before. There's different ways of looking at this. Yeah. Now, it says, since they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That's a very confusing phrase, crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm. What, is the, what do you think that means? Well, it's, it's pretty difficult. Now I, knew, I want to step up out of this and just look at the big picture in the book of Hebrews. Okay? The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish professors of faith in Christ, people who claim to be Christians. Um, so they had the outward trappings of being Christians. They were going to church, you know, all of that, which is a good thing to have the outward trappings of being a Christian. But it's not a guarantee that you have the inner transformed nature either. All right. Uh, so it's, it's got to be both. But at any rate, they are professors of faith in Christ. They claim to be Christians. They're Jewish and they're under immense societal pressure, religious pressure to renounce the new covenant and go back to old covenant Judaism. But the author has made it very plain. He goes right for the jugular, right at the beginning. When he talks about the sun being the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And for chapter after chapter, it talks about the supremacy of Christ. Because he knows that what you're doing when you're turning back from the new covenant to the old covenant is you're turning your back on Jesus. Mm-hmm. You're saying Jesus is not the Messiah. Well, what is he? Well, I don't know. It doesn't matter what. It, no, no. What is he? If Jesus isn't the Messiah, what is he? Well, if you're going to push me, then I think he's a deceiver of the people. Really? Tell me more. How bad is it? really bad. Lots of people are following him. Actually, lots of people are blaspheming because they're worshiping him as God. They are worshiping Jesus as God the Son. And now you're claiming that he's nothing, he's nobody. So it's a, it, you're really doing violence to Jesus at this point. You can't just be mild or neutral about him. You're going to make some pretty strong statements as Jesus' enemies, Jewish enemies did. He is a deceiver of the people. Um, he's really a murderer of souls. He's a, he's a false teacher. And so once you, you get in place that in order to apostatize in this setting, you are directly attacking Jesus. You're spitting in his face. And so the author uses this kind of language, frankly, twice. Um, he uses it here and then again in Hebrews 10. But, uh, you know, he says here, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss... They are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So he doesn't mention that it was Jews that specifically pushed Pilate to do it. The Gospel of John makes that very, very plain. But I I think it was a cooperative effort between Jews and Gentiles together. These are the two categories of people we always see in the book of Romans, whatever, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So basically, Jew plus Gentile together conspired to kill Jesus. But for this part, these Jewish professors of faith in Christ are now standing with Jesus' enemies, Annas, Caiaphas, Judas, all of these Jewish enemies that hated him and would love to have killed him and did conspire to kill him. Now, these folks, it's after the fact now, it'll never happen again, but it's like, if I had to choose, I would be among those who crucified him. 
So that's, I think, what it is. They are they're basically crucifying him all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. We'll talk about that later in Hebrews 13, where he was crucified outside the city gate, like a pile of manure. He was rejected by his own people. He was despised and hated. So these Jewish professors of faith are no longer professors of faith. They don't profess to be Christians. So what about Jesus? He's worthless. He's like a pile of dung. And so they are crucifying him all over again, subjecting him to public disgrace. But it says to their loss. Right. Jesus isn't harmed by it at all. Where's he? He's at the right hand of God. You can't touch him. You can't make him any less glorious. You can't pull him down off his throne. You're not doing anything to Jesus. So all of that is just destroying your own soul. That's what they're doing. Yeah. I appreciate that. That brings a lot of clarity to that passage. If I could bring that down into to one or two sentences, basically you're saying Jesus is either your Lord or you're casting your lot to crucify him. It can't be one it can't be a third option. Yeah. You can't be neutral on him. You gotta deal with Jesus and here. Let me let me read the passage from Hebrews ten, because it's the same idea. And he said, How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has, listen to this, trampled the Son of God underfoot? who is treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and has insulted the spirit of grace. I mean, that's, that's violent language. Now, again, they're not doing anything to Jesus. But if they could, they would. And ultimately, they're destroying their own souls. It's a very, very serious thing that's going on here. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about one thing, and that's the beginning of verse 6. It says, if they fall away. And so the image here is, is, uh, is one of uh, height that you had attained and you're falling from that height. Uh, we sometimes speak of the language of backsliding. Uh, and I think that's appropriate because conversely, uh, we speak in Philippians of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So to make progress, metaphorically, is to go up. You're going up, 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 always up, you know, just kind of like following Jesus in his ascension, I guess. And uh, we want to make progress in the Christian life and go higher and higher in the Christian life. So the language here of falling away is its like you're climbing that beautiful, majestic mountain and you lose your grip and you tumble all the way back down to the valley or the ditch below. And that's a, a terrible image here of falling, falling away, really, from Christ. Yeah. Now, what does the, the farmland analogy add to this? He says... Uh, he says, if it's a land that has drunk the rain, I'm going to take out some of the clauses to make it easier to understand. Basically, if the land drinks the rain and produces fruit, it's useful. Mm -hmm. If it produces thorns, it's all burned. Yeah. So how does that uh, help us to understand really the the theme in the New Testament that you know fruit is the validity of conversion? It's, it's the sign. Well, you, you said it. I mean, Jesus said, by their fruit, you'll know them. And in the context there, it was false teachers, but also professors of faith in Christ. Without fruit, there's no life. Fundamentally, there's so many passages that teach this. It's all about the fruit. What, what kind of fruit do we see? And, you know, I've heard one teacher say there's two categories of fruit. There's action fruit and attitude fruit. So there's external body fruit, things that you actually do, your actual actions, what you do with your body. But then there's also demeanors and attitudes and things that are going on inside you. So you could, you could uh, imagine that you don't act on anything at all. You don't do anything at all, and it's fruit. For example, you're under uh, terrible temptation toward lust, and you put it to death by not acting. You don't do anything. Or perhaps even you act to get out of that situation, to, to run like Joseph did away from Potiphar's wife. But ultimately, you could literally do nothing, and it's still fruit, because you've been wholly inside your mind and heart. Or you could kind of bite your tongue. You want to say something. Somebody said something that really hurt you and insulted you, and you just don't say anything. You just stand firm and you, you're quiet. And so those two categories, I thought that was helpful. Action, fruit, and attitude, fruit. 
Here's the thing, though. No fruit, no life. Mm -hmm. If there's no action fruit and no attitude fruit, then there's no life. Well, this is the very point that James 2 makes. Without fruit, you're dead. Your, your faith is meaningless. Faith without works is dead. It does not justify. So um, basically, this agricultural image, very common. Jesus used agricultural images over and over. The kingdom of heaven is like a, uh, a farmer sowed seed, and, and as he went out, some seed fell here, and some. And the end, some fell on good soil, which produced a crop, 160, 30 times of what was sown. All right, so there's that image. Then the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, you know, which grew and, and got and flourished and, and developed. Uh, you've got also negatively, you get the image of the cursing of the fig tree where he comes up and there's no fruit. And he curses and says, may you never bear fruit again. It's the only like negative or damaging supernatural thing Jesus ever did. That's a cursing. Um, we got we got many of these agricultural images. But the most important for me with this passage is, is John 15. I am the vine. Uh, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It says of the Father, Jesus speaks of his Father, saying, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener or the vine dresser. And, and he says, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes or cleans so that it'll be even more fruitful. So fruit's everything. If there's no fruit, what's he going to do? He's going to cut that branch off. And then in John 15, he says, the branches that are cut off fall to the ground and wither, and such withered dead branches are collected and burned in the fire. Well, that's about the exact same thing that happens to this field of thorns. It produces no fruit. There's no harvest. It's just thorns. And it's not surprising the author reaches for thorns. That's yeah, thorns is bad. In the yeah, yeah, yeah. I was reading I mean, that when this you think morning. about thorns, what do you think? Well, I was reading this morning the uh, the parable of the the one who went out and sowed the field, and uh, and there was and then the evil one came and threw the sowed the thorns, mm -hmm. and uh, and then he says, "Wait till the end," and then at the end they pull up all the thorns and they throw them in the fire. Yeah, and of course, I mean, you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You know, the curse yeah. on the ground. He says it will produce thorns and thistles for you. Jesus wore a crown of thorns on his uh, on his brow uh, to show that he was totally immersed in the curse. He had become a curse for us. And so the idea here is this is cursed land. It's that, that land is cursed. The author even says it right in our text here. So the land that receives all of these lavish benefits produces just thorns. It's going to be cursed and burned. So that that is the language of fruitlessness. It means that the people were not genuinely born again. I think this just cinches the argument. Without fruit, there's no life. But if there is genuine fruit, John 15, the vine dresser, the father, cleans you, prunes you, so that you'll be even more fruitful. So there's some things in all of our lives that are imperfect. There are sins that we commit. There's wasted time. There's efforts that we put toward things that are not going to be of any consequence uh, eternally. And the Lord's active through the Holy Spirit to clean our lives up, to sanctify us and make us even more fruitful. But I'm just saying, if there's no fruit, there's no faith, James says. There's no saving faith. Your faith is dead. And if there's no fruit, there's no life, John 15, you're going to be burned in the fire. So it all comes down to fruit. Yeah. But this author says, for your case, we feel sure of better things. But he still gave him this really big warning. Yeah. He still wants to scare them. He does. <laughs> so, and I'm scared. You should yeah. be scared, Joel. We should all be scared. This is a scary chapter. It's a scary book. The book of Hebrews is, a, is meant to scare us. It's meant to warn us. It's meant to warn us about hell. It's meant to warn us about drifting away, turning away, and falling away, which are the three 
you know, stages that we've seen in Hebrews 2, Hebrews 3, and Hebrews 6, you know, apostasy. It's like for you to say, look, I know I could never apostatize. That could never happen to me. That is the kind of complacency and arrogance that this book is meant to destroy. Yeah, Paul says, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Yeah, so we are, we are supposed to be scared by this and say, I don't want to be the kind of person who's surrounded by Christians, who's hearing good preaching, who's got so many resources. We're so rich here in America with good Christian evangelical resources, who's been super saturated and who produces no fruit. You know, and I think also, I don't want to be the kind of person that produces insufficient fruit. And that's a danger for all of us. We're all going to be, I think, sad on Judgment Day that we didn't do more for the Lord. But the idea here is that, that I think fear is appropriate. So the author is saying, you know, I actually have good hopes in your case. I'm not, I'm not saying this because I think that you are producing thorns and thistles. I actually do see some good fruit in your life. I see some things that uh, are beneficial, and I see the grace of God at work in your life. So he is encouraging them. But you're right, he's also pretty severely warning them. But they need this warning to yeah. spur them on to more to good works and to faith. For sure, for sure. So for me, it's just you look at that, and, and I think we, we need to do that as pastors, as spiritual leaders, be able to see, you know, I've given you a warning, but I also want you to know I see the grace of God at work in your life. I see some fruit. Now, I think it's important for us to know what are the marks of regeneration, what kind of fruit that we want to see. And I think we're, we're going to talk about that maybe next time. But it's a very, very important thing for us to understand this passage. Well, that's a perfect way to conclude it. That actually is uh, exactly what we're going to talk about next time. Uh, we'll do episode 13 in Hebrews, which are, is good works are the marks of regeneration. Well, we'll discuss Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12. Do you have any final comments, maybe applications sure. for faithful attenders of church uh, that we can apply this message? Well, first of all, we need to understand that apostasy from Christ, falling away from Christ, is absolutely possible. It is absolutely possible. Think of it this way. If the Lord Jesus Christ stopped praying for you, and if the Holy Spirit stopped doing anything toward you, and you had the exact same kind of mental, spiritual state and makeup right now, and the world, the flesh, and the devil and his demons could have at you as much as they wanted, and God would not protect you, are you telling me you wouldn't fall away? Absolutely you would fall away, probably later this afternoon. So great would be the temptations that Satan could orchestrate and the assaults. Look what happened to Job in one day. I mean, horrible. So I feel that it's important for us to realize that our life is a dynamic situation, totally dependent on the ongoing priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. He needs to keep interceding for us. The Holy Spirit needs to keep feeding our faith. We need to keep being strengthened. We need to keep being enlightened. We need to keep tasting of the heavenly gift. We need to keep being around the Holy Spirit. All of these things are important. But for ourselves, we need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And this book will give you fear and trembling. It will have you say, you know, if I'm not careful about sin, if I'm not watching, very carefully watching and mortifying the deeds of the flesh, I will fall away. If I leave off careful watching, if I leave off prayer, if I leave off Bible intake, if I stop going to church, if I forsake the assembling of myself together, if I don't partake of the means of grace, I will most certainly fall away. And I don't want to do that. So I want the Lord to strengthen me in my faith. Now, here's the thing. for As a Calvinist, uh, somebody who believes in Reformed theology, I believe that everything that's necessary to sustain a truly justified person will happen. But fear is part of that. A healthy fear of falling away is essential to salvation. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was episode 12 in the book of Hebrews. 
I would encourage you, if you're listening on the podcast, to go to twojourneys.org, and in the books slash Bible study section, you can download the book of Hebrews Bible study questions for free, and you can read the scriptures on your own and answer some of these same questions yourself. So if you're looking for additional study, please go to twojourneys.org and download the free resources. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.